for listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, my dad is the type of doctor who can't help anyone. Uh, I heard an old seminary professor say that one time that he overheard his daughter saying that to one of her friends. It was one of those things that kind of always kept him humble. That Listen, she said, uh, uh, talking to her friend, that yeah, my dad's a doctor, but he's not the type that can help anyone. It's pretty humbling for a guy who, yeah, he, he wasn't a medical doctor. He wasn't an MD, okay? He didn't know how to read x-rays. He couldn't do uh, surgeries. He, he couldn't, uh, you know, do all these life-saving things that medical doctors do. And so in his daughter's eyes, as well as maybe, the, uh, maybe most of the rest of the world, he, he was, he was kind of useless. His Ph.D. really didn't mean anything. But this guy had a Ph.D. from a, a very prestigious uh, seminary. And then he was teaching at, a, at another very prestigious seminary. But when he overheard his daughter say that that day, it was kind of one of those things that just kind of always kept him, kept him humble. My dad's the type of doctor that can't help anyone. Uh, Jill Biden, our, our new first lady, she has her doctorate. It's, a, uh, it's a, what's called an ED. It's a doctorate of education. She got it from the University of Delaware. And her dissertation, uh, which I think is kind of uh, an interesting topic, is on uh, junior college student retention. Now, uh, recently, before the inauguration, there was kind of a cheeky journalist who, who kind of ripped her for not having a real doctorate. Now, listen, I could care less about that discussion on what's a real doctorate or not, okay? But, but I know a, a lot of friends who had PhDs and doctorate of education or demons really got their feathers uh, ruffled over those comments. Listen, I have my doctorate, but I don't want anybody to call me doctor except for if we were in an academic environment. I, I don't place much of my identity and having my doctorate. And, and I don't really, uh, uh, I, but I do identify with maybe that uh, uh, professor's, that seminary professor's daughter who made that comment about her dad uh, who had a doctorate who maybe couldn't help anyone. But the older I get, I really see that medical doctors, MDs, really have a, a, a sacred purpose of keeping us from death. And, and listen, in all this pandemic it's just highlighted uh, for all of us how thankful we are for them i'm grateful for mds likewise i'm i'm very thankful for nurses we have a lot of nurses in our church and and nurses have have been heroes this past year we're really thankful for those those doctors and nurses those type of doctors uh, they have this uh, this sacred work of trying to keep us from death and listen, as a society, as Christians, we should esteem them and be thankful for them. But listen, I'm a, I'm a different type of doctor. My role is not to keep you from death, but to prepare you for death. So Dr. Caswell's role in your life, is, if you will, is really to equip you in such a way for life and ministry that you're ready for death when it comes. And rarely does it come uh, when we want it or maybe how we want it. But, but my role in your life is to prepare you for death. That's a pretty morbid way to, to start this series, but I promise it gets more encouraging. But listen, 2020 has been awful. 
or was awful, and now 2021 is kind of where I feel like we're in the same boat, and maybe it's, maybe it's worse in other ways. And, and listen, unless you live through the Great Depression or you live through World War II, none of us have walked through what uh, we have walked through here. Uh, it reminds me of the Beatitudes where Jesus said in Luke 6, Blessed are those who weep now, for you shall laugh. Listen, that teaching uh, of the Beatitudes highlights that we're supposed to view all suffering through the lens of the future. Again, Jesus said, Blessed are, are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. In the future, we're going to laugh. We're in a trial now, but we're not supposed to see all of life through the present. We're actually supposed to hope in things in the future and, and let those future truths, those future promises, those future realities become a lens through which we view our present suffering. So we might be weeping now, but laughter awaits. This year, I wanted to start this year with this uh, series of messages on what we're calling our glorious future. And my intention for these and prayer for these is to really kind of help us lift our eyes up and out of uh, our present trials. I want us to see our present trials through the lens of the future. God has given us all these future promises, and they're to help us in the present. They have a present reality and a present purpose. You see, we're promised a glorious future, and those promises serve us in the present. You see, we're to know the promises We're to ponder those promises and and think on them. We're we're to cling to those in difficult days. Those promises about our glorious future really kind of help guide or navigate us in our present struggle. So the the reason why today's message I think is so important is because Christians should both be realist about trials. Like we shouldn't look at the pandemic and, and act like it's not real or unimportant. We should be really honest about the struggles and the trials of this life. But we face them differently than the rest of the world, don't we? Like we have a a, a very uh, faithful, hopeful optimism about the future. We know how the story ends. We know about these promises, and they help us face the realities of of this world in a different way. It, It brings us hope. It brings us happiness, while at the same time being very, very honest about suffering in this Uh, present age. So again, I want to pull our eyes up and out of this world. I want to remind us of God's good promises. Now, before we start reading in verse 39, let me just make a couple of contextual things about, uh, contextual comments about Luke 23. Luke 23, this is uh, towards the end of uh, end of the Gospels, of course, and Jesus has gone before Pilate, then he's gone before Herod, and, and, he's, um, and, and they have uh, convicted him, and now he is uh, facing his crucifixion. And what we've seen up to this point is we've seen the religious leaders mock Jesus. We've seen soldiers mock Jesus. We've seen the politicians mock Jesus. And now we've, we've hit this lowest form where we now see this criminal mocking Jesus. And this account reminds us of, of a few things. Number one, it reminds us that sinners will shockingly and foolishly mock Jesus to their own demise. That happened back then. And it happens today. It, this account also reminds us um, that, that this uh, uh, scene forces us to face uh, a common misconception that we might have about our own sin. Some of us think that some of our sins are, are so awful that Jesus could never forgive us. Some of us think, listen, I'm a criminal, justly, you know, being uh, even uh, killed for what I've done. There's no way Jesus could forgive me for that. Well, we're going to blow up that misconception. 
And, and I think third, others uh, look down on the criminals in a, in a way that, um, uh, that they work to, to not be a criminal or, or, to, uh, or, or to in some way earn their way into salvation. And, and listen, this is how most of us kind of just functionally operate. We look down on the criminals and say, yeah, yeah, that guy's not getting in. But, but I'm going to earn my way up. And so we don't understand grace as it relates to sinners. So we're going to first look at the wicked sinner, the repentant sinner, and then the promises of the Savior. So if you do have your bulletins, the first question we're asking is, is what are the beliefs of the wicked sinner? Let, let me read verse 39 for us. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The ESV that I, I typically preach out of uses the word railed. Other translations say he hurled insults at Jesus. He scoffed at him. He heaped abuse upon Jesus. You see, when he asks Jesus if, if he's the Christ and he makes this comment about saving himself and saving us, okay, he's, he's bitterly sarcastic in this moment, okay? This is just, uh, just dripping with disrespect and taunt. He's taunting Jesus here. See, rather than fearing Jesus, he mocks Him. Rather than worshiping Him as the Son of God, he's making fun of Him. Rather than seeing the glory of what Jesus was accomplishing, and so many around them were seeing that, this guy starts making cynical jokes about Him. You see, some believe that if they could have seen Jesus in the flesh, if they could only have been there and seen the miracles, or if they would have just heard those teachings in His presence, then, then yeah, I, I would have believed if I could have been there. Well, I don't think so, and I don't buy that reasoning at all. Because there were people who saw the miracles, who were in His flesh, who were watching Him forgive people who had just scourged Him and hung Him on a cross, and, and forgiving them, not spewing you know, curses at them. And this guy still didn't believe. It's always a hard issue. You see, this guy was there for all of it, and his response was bitter sarcasm. Those who mocked Jesus today would have mocked him back then if they were physically with him. Those who have an excuse today, well, that miracle couldn't really happen, but you know if I actually saw it, they would have an excuse back then, okay? There would always be some sort of excuse or something for people. This guy is the great example of that. Of course, the irony here is pretty rich, isn't it, right? Like, here's the righteous one, perfectly righteous, being mocked by an unrighteous one. You see, this man is justly uh, uh, facing his justice. He should have been on that cross. He was a criminal. However, he believes that all of this is foolishness. All of this is meaninglessness. And listen, the root of that, the root of that mindset, and, and a lot of us struggle with that at times. The root of that is self-righteousness. You see, all this was dumb to him. He didn't have to believe this. He didn't have to submit to this. This was all foolishness. He's right. They're wrong. They're idiots. They're dumb. But, but he knows the truth. And that's, that's the root of that type of sarcasm and mocking. Therefore, instead of believing Jesus and loving Jesus, he spews sarcasm. He rebuked Jesus to his own demise. Wicked sinners believe in themselves and they mock Jesus. You see, many criminals, I always think it's, this is pretty morbid, but uh, I always think it's interesting how people respond when they're on death row. Like, when they're facing their death, 
And, you know, uh, and they're, you know, justly going to their death for the crimes that they've committed. How do they face that? And people kind of take two different paths. Like some people, you know, I mean, they don't, they don't uh, uh, face the chair or, or whatever uh, form of punishment they're going through. They don't do that overnight. Like there's, there's all sorts of appeals. I mean, this takes years. And so in those years, different things happen in different people's hearts, right? Like some people, uh, they wrestle with some of that. And they become very uh, introspective and they become very contrite. And, and many of them ended up apologizing to the families. Like if you read the last words of people who die on death row, many of them are, are apologizing to the family, asking for their forgiveness, praying for their peace. A lady named Carla Faye Tucker, uh, who was uh, killed for her crimes in Texas. That was her case. She was converted in jail. She, she prayed for, the, the, uh, for peace of the family members and friends of the, of the person she killed. And here, here's where her last words. She said, I'm going, to fa- I'm going to be face to face with Jesus now. She wrestled with this. She, she faced her death. She acknowledged her sin and she responded in that very gracious way. Other people, the truly wicked ones, right? That's not the way they respond. Like if you think of like a truly wicked criminal, like they're pretty wild out and crazy to the end. I, I read a quote this week of a, of a man, um, he, uh, he killed a bunch of people. His name was George Engel. And here was the last thing that he said. And by the way, he yelled it. He said, hooray for anarchy. This is the happiest moment of my life. And that's how he went out. That's kind of where this criminal is at. He, he's just going out, you know, in a blaze of glory, mocking God, mocking everyone else. Can people live like that first criminal today? Well, of course we can. In fact, I would argue that mocking God is the popular way to live. You see, those who even hold the levels of, uh, levers of our culture, they're, they're people who, who, uh, who uh, esteem mocking God. They don't esteem believing and trusting in the God of the Bible. Like it's, it's more scandalous to embrace biblical ethics than it is to like, really in nasty ways make fun of Jesus, isn't it? Like, think about our culture. Like, think about the people who mock God, do it publicly, make a lot of money on it. Like, that's more accepted in our culture, you know, people making jokes about Jesus than people taking up their cross and following. However, the joke is going to be on the wicked sinner uh, as the repentant sinner is going to shine some light of truth on him. So we're all sinners, but some of us are of the unrepentant sort. Well, let's look at the second one. What are the beliefs of a repentant sinner? He's a sinner too, but he's repentant. Look at verse 40 with me. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we are indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Listen, the, the second man is also a criminal. The second man is also on death row. The second man is also uh, justly judged, just like the first man. In, in other words, he should have been on that cross, just like the first man. Okay, He's also a sinner, if you will. This scene forces us now to compare these two guys. And, and again, notice that so much of their, um, their lives and their descriptions are the same. They're criminals facing just justice, okay? But, but their perspective, their beliefs are, are very, very different, right? 
Their circumstances might be the same, but their beliefs about what's going on is very different. They're both criminals. They're both facing the, the, the just justice or the rewards for their crimes, but they respond radically different, don't they? You see, the, the second criminal, he rebukes the first. Now, just to be clear, a, a rebuke is like a really direct correction, okay? Like he doesn't uh, mince words. He's very plain. He's very clear. And he's telling him, you're wrong on this. You need to change how you believe. You need to go a different direction. That's what a rebuke is. And in this case, he tells the first sinner that he's wrong to mock Jesus. What he's saying here is that sinners don't have the moral high ground with Jesus. Like this, no joke about Jesus is appropriate. None of us have the moral high ground to judge Jesus. None of us have the moral high ground to mock Jesus. We're, we're to be judged by Him. We're not to judge Him. He's the righteous one. We're, we're not the righteous one. We're to submit to Jesus. We're to worship Jesus. We're not to mock Jesus. The, the, the content of His rebuke, I think, is pretty interesting because He gets kind of to the heart of it. Notice what He says there. He's, he gets to fear the Lord. Don't you fear the Lord? Like, like He gets right to His heart. You see, when sinners are mocking a righteous God, it's evidence that they don't fear God. But there's a difference between, uh, like, like when you read the Psalms, and, and this psalmist is like really genuine with God. It's like really authentic. He's asking these honest questions. And listen, some people can read that as like, man, he's just letting God have it. Like he's, he's telling off God or something. I, I don't think that's a fair reading of the Psalms. Because when you read the Psalms, the, the typical Psalm yeah, he, they get real with God, okay? But then there's always this, this turn in the Psalms, isn't it? Yet I will trust you. Yet I will follow you. Yet I went into your sanctuary, and, and, and you gave me this different perspective, and now I worship you. There's always this, this ending of worship, isn't it? So listen, God calls us you know, to be transparent with Him, to be genuine with Him, to get real with Him. But that's never to be in conflict with fearing Him. We can talk honestly and authentically with God about our pain and our struggles and our questions, but that's in the context of fearing Him. Criticism and deconstruction and questioning, those are not biblical virtues. Faith is biblical virtue, right? So, so these people that, that, that come at uh, Jesus and the New Testament, and they're just trying to pick it apart and find the, the lowest common denominator of what they can believe, they're totally missing the great virtue of the New Testament, which is faith, trusting Him. And the root of that is, is fearing Him. You see, when we're judging God, we're not fearing Him. The problem with not fearing Him is that it leads to our condemnation. This guy was condemning Jesus... But, but the second criminal highlights, listen, that's about to get flipped around on you real quick, like in minutes, okay? Don't you fear him? You're, you're the one that's ab about to face condemnation from him, and so he rebukes him. Listen, another way of saying all this is that people who judge God rather than accept his judgment, they're on their way to hell. And that's what the first criminal is saying, or the second criminal is saying to the first. The second criminal knew that he was at fault for a sin. He wasn't going to spend his time blaming God for sin, for his sin. Like this second criminal, he wasn't the type that said the devil made me do it. Or you know what, the, the way mom and dad raised me, that, that, that's why I've done all these things. 
Listen, he, he wasn't one that said, well, my neurobiology says it. Da, 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 da. Well, that's, he, did, he didn't blame other things or other people. He looked at himself and said, listen, I'm guilty. I, I, I should be here. You see, he confesses his sin, and he acknowledges the cross's justice in his case. You see, he deserves to be there, and he knows it. The, the, the cross was rewards for his sinful deeds. The second man is, uh, is a sinner like the first, but he's a repentant sinner. They're both sinners, but what do they do with their sin? You see, we need to maybe push a little bit deeper here because his confession of sin is actually a profession of faith, isn't it? Like he's confessing his sin, but his speech is this expression of trust and faith in Jesus. Biblical faith is turning away from certain things, but turning towards other things. And this second criminal models this for us perfectly. You see, his saving faith begins with this confession of sin. I'm a sinner. I need help. But it doesn't stop there. He then turns and moves and puts his trust and his hope in Jesus. Jesus, will you remember me? You see, our problem with sin is that it separates us from God. But that separation can take different forms, can it? And listen, this guy kind of rejects all those forms. Like separation from God and our sin, for many of us, it takes the form of pride. Like, we don't sin as much as others, and so we're okay. Some, for some of us, it takes the form of, of shame. But, oh my goodness, I, I'm so awful, God could never forgive me. And so I'm going to do like Adam and Eve, I'm, I'm going to go hide. But this criminal, he does something different. He, he is so desperate. Like, he's facing death within minutes. He's desperate. And, and he just moves past pride, he moves past shame, he confesses his sin, and then he professes his faith in Jesus. He knew he was not good enough, but he knew that Jesus was, so he hoped in God. Therefore, this is a confession, but it's also a, a, a plea for Jesus to remember him. But look at the text, he says, remember me. That's both a, a plea and a prayer. It reminds me of Matthew uh, 7 where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, did, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I would declare to him, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the, the second criminal is not in that category, is he? You see, this repentant sinner is crying out, remember me, know me, allow me to be with you. He starts talking about his, his coming kingdom and he's gonna, that Jesus is going is to return and establish this kingdom. And, the, and this second repentant sinner says, I want to be there with you in your kingdom. I, I want to be with you. He wants to be where Jesus is going. He wants to be with Jesus. He knows he doesn't deserve it and he's simply crying out for mercy, isn't he? He's professing his faith. He's trusting him. He's believing. He's trusting. He's hoping. He's a sinner, but he's a repentant, confessing, professing sinner. His prayer is a prayer of faith. Simply remember me. And then Jesus responds with a promise. Look at this, this third turn. What's Jesus' promise for the repentant sinner? And, and this is the really good news of the passage. Look at verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So based upon this man's confession, profession of faith, and really desperate plea, Jesus makes a promise about a glorious future. And there's a number of parts of this. Let's kind of break them down if you look at that verse. First, this promise is true. Truly. 
Second, this promise is immediate today. Third, it's about communion. You're going to be with me. And then fourth, it's about paradise. So the promise, and to be clear, it's not based upon that man's righteousness. (laughs) There's no righteousness in that guy's life. It's based upon Jesus' righteousness. And the access to this point is this man's faith, this man's confession and profession. Let's break Jesus' statements down in, in these kind of four parts. First, Jesus begins His promise with the word truly. Now listen, everything that Jesus says is true, okay? But, but, he, but he adds this here. And what He's trying to do, He's trying to get His attention. He's saying, listen, this is a profound truth, okay? Really listen to me here. This is really true. This is really important, okay? So, so what we're hearing here, you know, the, the guy who, everything he says is true, he begins with truly, okay? This is very true, what we're looking at here. This is true for him and for us, and we need to pay attention. Second, what is glorious about this truth is that it's, um, that it's based upon the man's faith uh, when he dies, and that he will immediately be with Jesus in paradise. So this is the clearest place in the Bible that, that talks that, that helps us learn what happens immediately upon death. Like you take that last breath, and then what happens to your soul? Now we know what happens to your body, but but what about your soul? What he's saying here is that very day, even though that man's body is going to die, we all know that our body is not the c- complete. Uh, you know, a part of who we are. It's a very essential part of who we are. It is part of who we are, but it's not all of who we are. We all know that we have these, these souls within us. He's saying that, listen, even though that your body is about to die hanging on this cross, your soul is going somewhere, and it's going somewhere immediately. It's not going to linger in an intermediary state. We're Protestants. We, we reject the idea of, of purgatory or something like that. This is, this is the clearest place where, where we see this. Jesus promises that that very day he would be in paradise. So when we breathe our final breath in this world, we immediately breathe new breath in, the, in, in this new world, in this place called paradise. Jesus is not speaking about this unspecified future. He's speaking about the immediate present Jesus wants us uh, to clearly hear this profound truth that heaven is immediate. You with me? Number three, the promise of a man's glorious future is immediate, and it's also going to be with Jesus. Listen, heaven is about communion with Jesus. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. So upon taking that final breath, we immediate, immediately enter this state. We, we go to this place of bliss, and, and it's, it's wonderful and it's glorious because that's where Jesus is, and, and we're with Jesus. Now, we know that we're with Jesus in some way here and now, right? But, but, but this is in this perfect, ultimate way. I mean, this is like going back to the garden, right? Where they were walking with God. That's what heaven is going to be like, that we're going to be with Jesus. Jesus is there. And listen, we saw glimpses of this reality when Jesus was here on earth, right? Like when you think about when Jesus was here, even this kind of the sphere around him, relationally and all other things, they kind of just worked how they were supposed to work, right? Like when somebody did something wrong, Jesus forgave them. When there was a storm, he said, stop, and it stopped. Like there was the kingdom, if you will, was around him. And so we get these tastes of, of what it's supposed to look like. And in a similar way, because Jesus is there, heaven is glorious. And if you think about it, 
when you are intimately communing with Jesus, isn't everything better? But maybe not the circumstances or what are ideal, but, but you're able to navigate those circumstances differently, right? Um, my, my father told me uh, one time that when he was, uh, my father had a series of heart attacks when he was 39 years old, right before his 40th birthday. And the day after he turned 40, he went in uh, to the hospital to check things out. He knew something was wrong. He had a summer birthday. And so it was kind of that whole summer uh, was just heart surgeries. He ended up having a total open uh, heart surgery, a double bypass. And, and listen, they, they thought he was going to die. And, and it was just a, it was a scary moment in the, in the life of our family. But what's really interesting is my dad told me that he had complete peace in that season. Like, like, here's a man, a young man, 40 years old, young children. You know, he wasn't ready for this. And he had just the, the peace in those moments, that summer, he, he had as much peace as he'd ever had in his life. What terrible circumstances to go through. You know why he had that peace? He was communing with Jesus during that summer. Jesus was with him. He was with Jesus. And, and even though his circumstances were difficult, because he was with Jesus, he went through that experience in a very unnatural way. Okay? When people go through that at that age, it's a terrifying thing. It's not marked by peace. But heaven is heaven because we will be communing with Jesus. And we get a taste of that here. We know what that's like. When we're communing with Jesus here, man, the circumstances can be a mess. But we're good. We're marked by contentment and peace in him. Okay, fourth, Jesus promises this man paradise. Now, now listen, we've got to camp out on this term for a second. This is certainly a place, okay? You're going to be with me in this place, paradise. But paradise isn't the name of it. Paradise is the description of it. That's what I think is so marvelous about this thing. He's saying, you're, you're going uh, to be with me in this place, it's heaven, but I describe it as paradise, now, this word kind of has some interesting uh, roots to it. It's, it's, um, uh, it has uh, Persian roots to it. And if you think back in history, you think about uh, these, these Persian gardens, okay? Uh, it, this, word is, uh, this word for paradise describes initially a Persian garden or park. And wealthy Persians, they built these glorious gardens and parks. And even today, Persian gardens are described as paradise on earth. That's the root of this term, is, is this idea of a, of a beautiful park or a beautiful garden. Well, let's push this a little bit. I, um, I've seen some very beautiful parks and, and gardens in our country. But the most beautiful gardens and parks that I've seen are actually in England and France. And years ago, uh, Chris and I had a, an opportunity to spend some time in England and spend some time in Oxford. And, and when we were over there, we loved visiting the different parks. We got to go over in the summertime. The weather was beautiful. Uh, Kristen was, was pregnant, and we would go to these parks, and we would just have a picnic, and we would spend time together. We'd just kind of prop up our feet and visit we would just, you know, slow things down in a park, and, and we would hold hands, and we would take a nap on the blanket in this beautiful garden. Gardens are marked by rest, aren't they? You see, when, when he describes this place, and by using this word, what he's saying is, is heaven is a place of rest. However, that's not all that goes on in those gardens or in those parks. Like, 
our experience in England, you know, we're there in the summertime, we're in this college town, and, you know, of course, <laughs> Kristen was pregnant, and she just wanted to put her feet up, and I just wanted to spend time with her and talk with her, and so, you know, the park was about having this little, you know, picnic and getting to hold hands and talk and take a nap or whatever and rest, but, but that wasn't everybody in the park. The other kids in the park, there were a bunch of college students there, and you know what they were doing? They were playing games, they were laughing, they were throwing the frisbee, they were doing this, this thing that, uh, uh, that they called football, but in reality is soccer. You know, they were, they were playing rugby, they were doing all these things. Like, like they were having fun in the park. It was adventure in the park. When I coached my kids uh, flag football, we, all our practices were at, were at parks and gardens. You, you know what happens in parks? Touchdowns happen in parks, Okay. Like we would play our games in these parks and that's, you know, where these little, you know, goofy 10-year-old kids would become heroes for a moment, scoring all these touchdowns. Parks are also not only about rest, but they're about fun and they're about adventure. You see, when Jesus chooses this word, all of that is tied in there. When you think about heaven, it's about rest, but it's about fun and it's about adventure. However, gardens are also very beautiful. On that same trip, Chris and I got to go to Versailles. Have you ever been to Versailles? Like, you, you kind of understand why the, the poor peasants in France turned on this guy, okay? Like, Versailles is crazy wealth, okay? It's gold everywhere. It's mirrors. It's these unbelievable gardens, and it is just beautiful. And you walk around there, and you just, your mind is blown by how beautiful it is. Like, like just the, the, uh, the care that it takes to take care of the bushes and have everything cut in these orderly ways. And the colors are unbelievable, I mean, he, this guy, he had trees and flowers from all over the world. And it's just, you know, if I, I, I have this thing where I, you know, where I uh, have really wrestled a lot with the fact that God creates color. And we're supposed to see colors and feel certain things and soak certain things up. And man, when you go to Versailles and you see all the colors in the garden, it just blows your mind at the creativity of God. Uh, over the Christmas holiday, my daughter and I got into this uh, show about uh, this, this couple who bought a French chateau, and they have renovated it all, made it in kind of this wedding venue, and they wanted to kind of uh, redo the gardens, and so they went to all these French gardens around the country, and they learned all about these, uh, these different flowers and plants. And listen, the cool thing was is the more you kind of dug into those and understand those things, the more beautiful they actually became. It wasn't just like, huh, it's a pretty pink flower. It was like, man, they, they were just became passionate about these different flowers. That's what beauty does. Like something that is truly beautiful, it actually becomes more and more profound. It becomes more and more beautiful over time the more you wrestle with it and know it. Again, that's something that uh, is included in this word of paradise. Not only is this place marked by rest and fun and adventure, it's also marked by beauty. And listen, what does beauty do for us? Beauty fills our soul, Right? Like the songs that we listen to, they, they inspire us, they lift us up. Paintings do this, plays do this, movies do this. This is what art is supposed to do. This is what beauty is supposed to do. And listen, heaven is a place of beauty. Okay, where, where, where all does that lead? A, a place marked by rest and adventure and beauty. You know what that place is? It's a happy place, okay? It's a happy place. This garden, this paradise is is, is a happy place. And listen, this image of a garden paradise, it's profoundly theological and biblical. But what does this image remind you of? Well, well heaven is the new garden of Eden, right? Like we're, we're with God and it's marked by rest and adventure and beauty. It's this place where we're going to get uh, to walk with God. 
It's this place where we're going to experience happiness and joy of the likes we've never experienced in this world. This is uh, this, this experience of adventure, this place of fun and happiness. This, in, this, in this place, we will experience the type of happiness experienced when we soak up all the beauty of the sunrise or our wife's smile. To make it all better, there's actually a debate here. When, when he talks about, uh, he makes this comment about Jesus coming into his kingdom. Probably what's going on there is that uh, th- this sinner doesn't realize that this is all kind of around the corner. He thinks this, this is way in the future. When in reality, it's both. You see, Jesus says paradise is right, right around the corner. But we're going to see next week. But then when he uh, uh, returns and sets up his kingdom and you have this new heaven and this new earth, it only gets more glorious. My point in chasing that a bit is just to say that, that um, when we enter uh, when we enter paradise, it's going to be paradise, and it's only going to get better. What does that mean? I don't really know. But isn't that a glorious thought? We breathe our last breath, and we go into paradise, and that paradise only gets better. A new, more glorious Garden of Eden awaits. Rest and adventure and a beauty awaits. Happiness is the experience of heaven. Well, what does this mean for us? A few questions. Is your soul prepared for death? The reality of it is, is that we're all going to face a moment like those two criminals did 2,000 years ago where we're going to be face-to-face with death. We, we, we live in a day with all these glorious medical advances, right? I mean, we live in an amazing age of, of glorious medical advances. However, over the past 12 months, 1.5 million people have died from COVID-19. But yet we have these great medical advances. Listen, it's just a reminder that death comes for us all. And further, death rarely comes when you want it and how you want it. It's coming for all of us. But Jesus has this glorious promise about our future that on the other side of it is paradise, but we need to be prepared for it. He promises us that if we uh, have confessed and professed then we will immediately enter into paradise, just like the second criminal. It it will be like a a new Garden of Eden. It will be marked by rest and fun and adventure. It will be this place that is so glorious that we'll get to experience joy and worship uh, like we've never experienced before. But the question is, are you prepared for it? Because out of these two guys, one of them went and one of them didn't. Are you prepared for it? Listen, To cut to the chase, it gets to what do you believe about sin? Think about that first criminal. Do you think your sin is something to giggle about? Do you think sin is actually your real problem? Do you understand that your sin is is what keeps you from being in the presence of the holy, righteous God for eternity? Do you understand that sin is the root cause of all the problems in the world? Do you blame God for your sin? Do you run and hide from God as a result of your sin like Adam and Eve did? Or do you confess your sin to God just like the second criminal? And this is my third question for you. What do you believe about Jesus? Is Jesus just this nice historical figure from history? You know, a guy that, you know, he kind of teaches what all the religions teach, which is to be good. That's summarize the religion. That's what Jesus was about. Just go be good. Is that your take on Jesus? Because that's a very uh, cursory and inaccurate 
uh, reading of Jesus. It's not accurate at all, and it highlights that you hadn't really looked at who Jesus is, if that's your take on him. You see, uh, is he someone you really take seriously? Or is he someone you mock like the first criminal? Or like the second criminal, is he someone you profess your faith in, you plead to for eternity? Are you believing that his, his death atones for your sins so that you can, through his good work, move from this category of unrighteous to righteous? Do you believe that he is the one who will get you into heaven? Do you believe that it is his presence that makes heaven uh, paradise? Do you love him? Hear me, if you're here today or, or watching us, this is part of God's sovereign plan for you to hear His Word. You, you need to get some things right today. Listen, if you're here physically, you know, we have elders and pastors in the back who are always here to pray for you. But listen, if you're with us online, are you asking these questions of yourself? Do you need to get some things right with Him? Listen, there's so many ways to reach out to our elders and pastors. Reach out to us. We want to talk to you. We want to pray for you. We want to answer your questions. But listen, this is one of these passages that just forces you to get some things right with him. Where are you with him today? Confess and profess in order to enter paradise. Um, my dad died of COVID-19 less than a month ago. December, uh, well, I guess, no, I'm sorry, less than two months ago. De- December 18th, 2020. And listen, his soul was prepared for death. You see, when... My father was in the hospital dying of COVID-19. I got to once again see the blessings of MDs. In our debate about how to pay for health care in this country, I think we have forgotten that we have the finest, greatest health care system that the world has ever known in the history of the world. And my father is a great example of this. When my father died, he was 71. But as I referenced earlier, he started having heart attacks when he was 39. And listen, because the American medical system is so wonderful, we got 30 extra years with my dad. Because after those bypass surgeries, there were stents, and then there were all these different medicines, and all these MDs worked to you know, keep him from death, and it gave us 30 extra years with him. I'm still really overwhelmed by... Um, uh, with gratitude at all the nurses at the hospital that worked with my dad at the local Baylor hospital. They served him so faithfully. In addition to providing the medical care for him, these uh, men and women uh, genuinely loved him. They wept with us when, when he passed away. I- I'm, I'm thankful for those medical doctors. Those doctors worked to keep him from death. But like I said at the beginning, my job is not to keep you from death. I'm one of those doctors that is supposed to prepare you for death. Now, b- before you uh, think, you know, and start to become uh, cynical and think I'm somehow manipulating my uh, dad's death to prick your heartstrings, know this. My dad loved his doctors of the soul. And, and the men that had invested in him just wept at his death. They loved him so much. But he heard what they taught him. And as a result, his soul was prepared for those final days. He pondered these scriptures. He listened to sermons like this, and he was prepared for it. This is not manipulating his death in any way, because this is what he did with passages like this. And let me tell you what his final days were like. They weren't filled with embittered regret. He didn't have to you know, like clean up all these relationships. 
Like when we talked to him in those final days, they, they were filled with words like, I love you, I'm so proud of you, I'm so thankful uh, to, have, to, to be your husband and your father and your brother and your friend. Even in those final painful days, they weren't filled with anger toward healthcare workers who were serving him. You see this so many times when people are in pain. But in my dad's case, he was in a lot of pain. He could barely breathe, and he was still forcing out words like, thank you, you're doing a great job. Those are the types of things that he said to his nurses who were caring for him. Because he had prepared his soul, even though he was in physical pain, he was also hopeful. Listen, two days before he died, we had a, a good conversation about how he was realistic, but he was also hopeful. You see, he could still make little jokes, even his final day. He was sad, but he was hopeful to see those who had gone before him. You see, my, my dad would want me to share how, you, how he died with you because he was one of the greatest evangelists I ever, I've ever known. He, he would constantly tell people about Jesus. There were Sunday afternoons where he would call me and say, hey, I, I got to, uh, the joy of leading somebody to Christ today. You see, he was one of those leaders in his church. He was the guy standing at the back. He was the guy standing at the back receiving people who wanted to talk about Jesus. And, and he would uh, pray for them. He would listen to them. And he would lead them uh, to a saving faith in Christ. In fact, he even had his entire funeral planned. Okay, So again, if you think I'm taking advantage of him, you should have seen his funeral notes. His funeral notes were all about uh, wanting us to be really clear about the gospel. He wanted us to have a fervent plea for people to believe in the gospel. If he were here today, he would say, make sure your soul is prepared for death. That type of faith, that type of life is why he was so prepared for death. It didn't come when he wanted it. It didn't come how he wanted, but he was prepared for it. He was at peace he knew what was on the other side. He had this real hope in paradise. Listen, friends, the last 12 months have been awful. And the purpose of this series is just to draw our eyes up and out of this for a moment. To draw our eyes up to what we know is the future and hope in that and ponder that. But listen, Dr. Micah Lawrence Caswell is here to... Uh, um, I, I, my resolve from this series has only been solidified by watching the death of David Lawrence Caswell. Dr. Caswell is not able to keep you from death. However, Dr. Caswell is here to prepare you for death. If you don't think you need preparation, you are foolishly naive today. You see, if you don't think this message is critical, then you have not firsthand compared the lives of someone who has faithfully walked with the Lord with someone who hasn't and seen how they face death. It is totally different. You see, we are to live for the glory of God. We are to trust in Him. Is your soul prepared for your death today? Some sinners shockingly rebuke Jesus to their own demise. Others are, are so ashamed of their sin that they hide from Jesus like Adam and Eve. Some, uh, kind of like that criminal, they, they, they attempt to earn their place in heaven. They put God in the dock. However, they all miss the good news of the gospel. You see, all sinners can come to Him. No matter your sin, no matter your past, all sinners can come to Him. And it begins with confessing our sin to Him. And, and all sinners can repent of hoping in themselves and turn that to a profession of faith in Jesus. When we confess and we profess, Jesus promises us paradise. It's where He is. It's marked by 
perfect rest and happiness and joy. Don't walk away from this message today. If you're here or you're watching with us online, don't walk away from this. Don't waste it today without making sure your soul is prepared for death. Confess and profess in order to enter paradise. Pray with me. Father God, I thank you for uh, the stories and the examples of, of faithful saints from the past. Lord, even historic people that we read about, but ordinary faithful brothers and sisters who just did it right. All those people, if they were with us today watching this sermon or in this room today, they would be telling us, get your soul right. Be prepared for death. It, it can come at any moment. Rarely do we have the opportunity to even know when it's coming. Rarely do we have the opportunity to plan it out or be the way we want. But we all know it's coming. Lord, I pray that we would just ponder the weight of that today. That we wouldn't be like that first criminal mocking you as we march towards death. But we would be like that second, confessing our sin, professing our faith in you so that we can experience the promise of paradise with you. It's in Jesus' name we'll pray. Amen.